Well, good evening and welcome back. We've been off for a couple weeks here, at least when it comes to these sessions on biblical leadership with some of our family's travel plans, missed a few Sunday nights. But if you do recall this, a couple of Sunday nights ago before we left on our trip, uh, we, we started into Lesson 12, technically, How to Biblically Counsel. We got through Part 1, so we're finishing that up tonight with a, a Part 2. And overall, we're getting closer to the end of this Sunday night Bible study series on biblical leadership. And for months, we covered the foundation of leadership in the church, what it means, what the leader looks like, just the preparation of biblical leadership. And now we're getting into some of the practical subjects concerning the practice of leadership. What's the leader to do? How do you do it? And granted, we're still pretty limited into how deep we can actually take these studies, these how-tos, but I wanted to offer you a taste as to what the various leadership practices look like in action. And so we spent a couple weeks giving you a little snapshot of the practice of leadership in the church. We covered how to study the Bible and a few lessons on how to teach the Bible. And now we're into how to counsel, how to biblically counsel one another. We often think of biblical counseling as being very formal in an office environment, and sometimes it is. But remember, counseling at its core is nothing more than targeted discipleship. It's about helping another brother or sister grow in Christ by admonishing them and encouraging them in the faith, usually with a particular problem in mind. And in this regard, counseling is just, you know, the one another's of scripture. It's something we all should be engaged in. And I take it most Christians are at least at a basic level, but the more you know what the Bible says about such admonishment, the better you can help others in times of trouble. It's, it's great for all Christians to learn how to counsel a fellow believer? How do you admonish a fellow believer? But especially for the leader in the church, this is vital equipping. Because as the leader in the church, people will be looking to you for guidance, for counsel, for help, for hope. And it's important you know at least some of the basics about how to counsel, how to admonish, encourage, help. And so last time with part one, we gave more of the biblical foundation of biblical counseling. And want to walk you more through an understanding of what biblical counseling even is. And then we did a little crash course on what the Bible says about how to change. If you don't understand the core concepts of progressive sanctification in the Bible, or just how to change. Oh, you're not going to get too far in helping someone change. You have to kind of know how that works. And so if you're absent last time, this is a couple Sunday nights ago, I encourage you to get that part one, how to counsel. You'll get that quick crash course, how people change according to scripture. But for our time tonight, I want to give you now this second part, more of a step-by-step intro into the counseling process. We don't have time to, to dive into great detail, but I want to give you an outline of the steps taken in the counseling process. You may never be that formal counselor in that office environment, but again, the more you are know and are aware of what goes into this mutual admonishment. So like I said, that's, that's a one another. We all should be admonishing one another. The more you understand that the process in general, the better. Even if you're not going step by step, super formal, hopefully this will be edifying to you. The steps we'll cover, they're not strictly in order, but there is a logical flow to them. And they're, just, they're each designed just to help you know more of the main objectives of the biblical counseling process. You'll see that as we go, but... Let me ask you, just a reminder, what do you think is the main objective of the biblical counseling task? What's the main goal here when you're meeting with someone to counsel them, to help them? 
Edify them more specifically. Yeah, it's no different than we covered what, what's the, the main goal of the, the leadership task to present every person complete in Christ, that they would grow more into Christ's image, usually targeted at a specific problem, but just to, to see them glorify God by coming to salvation and or sanctification. We're just trying to help people grow in Christ's image. We have no other hidden agenda. There's no other vested interest than simply their Christ-likeness. Keep that straight. Now let's get into some of the main steps in the biblical counseling process, and we'll cover seven for the time we have. The first is involvement. So number one, involvement. Switch these off. Okay, first one, involvement. This is kind of a general step. It takes place all throughout the counseling process, but it's all about building a relationship with the counselee. Now, real quick, you know, why would you say it might be important to build a basic relationship with a counselee or someone you're meeting with? Trust. As the old adage goes, people have to know how much you care before they care how much you know. It's very true. In many ways, you're, you're almost earning a right to speak into their life, a window. In most of the times, you're going to need to tell them some hard things. But typically, people just have their walls up. They're guarded. Maybe they don't trust others. They're in for counseling as the last step, but they've been hurt so many times that they're just, it's hard to get through. But show them that you genuinely care for them. You love them in Christ. You're, you're, you're there. You're on their side. And to help lower their walls, otherwise nothing's really going to get through. It's trying to display to them, in reality, you're actually on no one's side but the Lord's. And you want to help them from his perspective. Your only concern is to help them, like we said, overcome their problem and grow in Christ. That, that's, that's it. And show them that you really care. We'll cover real quick how to establish involvement. We call this involvement. It's just, you know, being personable. How do you establish involvement? Well, be available for one. There's really no substitute for time spent. So, look, you've got to give them some time. It's not going to happen in five minutes. And as you're meeting with them, be 100% present, a.k.a. Like, don't check your phone. Don't, don't do other things while you're meeting with someone. You're, you're there. You're, you're all there, and you're, you're glued in. Diligence is required. Counseling is a form of labor, and you have to be available. You have to be committed. We would add, uh, be genuine. You, know, you really can't fake this step. You, you just have to have a genuine care, concern, and compassion for the person you're trying to help. What if it's someone who's really rough? They're, they're rough around the edges. How would you say, how can you foster care and compassion for someone who, you know, they're, they're pretty sinful, they're wicked, they're messed up, but now they're meeting with you. How can you foster a genuine care and compassion for someone maybe really different from you? Okay, get to know them, see maybe points of interest, points of similarity. What else, Dave? Yeah, just look back at yourself. Just look in the mirror real quick before you, you look at them. Just reflect on your own sinfulness, your own unworthiness before God, before salvation, and even still. What helps me is just remembering oftentimes in the counseling room, you're with someone who, let's say they're an immature believer or sometimes not even a believer. And look, in many respects, they don't know better, meaning they're spiritually ignorant of the truth. Does not excuse their sin, doesn't excuse anything, but it does put their sin into perspective. But you, on the other hand, you do know better. 
you know better when it comes to sin, yet sometimes you still fall short. So you know better, yet you still blow it. That should have a a humbling effect. Just uh, look at yourself in the mirror. But anyway, just to be genuine with a, a care for them and a concern. Acts 20, 31, Paul told the Ephesian elders, he said, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He was going house to house, just wrestling with them, admonishing them to pursue Christ, often with tears. His gut was involved in ministry, if you know what I mean. He says in 2 Corinthians 11, 29, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Intense concern. He he really cares to see them go astray. It it, it hurts him. It pains him. And he's compelled to, to help. He says to Philippians 2, 19 through 21, he hopes to send Timothy to them. He says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. He had a hard time recommending a counselor, a pastor for the Philippians because these guys were just selfish. They had their own interests. They had their own agenda. You can't, can't trust someone with an agenda like that. He had Timothy though, because he knew Timothy had no agenda but, but, but to honor the Lord and to, to genuinely help them to be like Christ. And uh, again, you can't fake this, can't make it up. You just have to uh, ask the Lord to work on your own heart to foster a genuine care and compassion for people. Be honest about your credentials, your qualifications, your capabilities. You don't need to like, oversell yourself. You're just a servant of Christ. You're going to do your best to administer God's word to help them. So you, you, you're relying on God's wisdom, not your own. You don't need to play yourself up. Just be humble. Be honest. I'll add, be gracious. And there are times in counseling where the counselee might sin against you or inadvertently offend you. Maybe not like something you say and take a little jab back at you. But you've got to remember, like I said, most likely dealing with, maybe we'll say an amateur believer, and it doesn't excuse their sins. And they'll have to come to repentance. But look, just, just deal with them as you would want God to deal with you when you're in sin. And that would be graciously, right? You know, it's, it's okay for you to overlook minor personal offenses. Don't take things personally or get defensive. You know, First Thessalonians 5.14 reminds us to be patient with all. Whoever we have, to, to be patient. And that's akin to being gracious. A gracious spirit will go a long way. And we'll add, be gentle. Be gentle. In fact, we're outright commanded to have this attitude in the rebuking and restoration process. Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Look, there will be plenty of time for admonishment. Where, look, sometimes you're going to need to bring down the hammer on someone and to strongly admonish, even rebuke them over their sin. You need to be firm and bold. But that doesn't mean you have to be like mean or angry or harsh. You can deliver an admonishment in a gentle manner, in a gracious, loving manner. You can speak sternly and, and seriously with someone, yet they know it's, this is love. I mean, just think of parenting. We often say that parents should discipline their children. The Bible commands it. But they should never discipline their children in anger, in wrath, 
right? Always in a calm and loving, forceful, but loving manner. Well, it should be the same in the counseling room when we, we might need to bring the, the Lord's rebuke into a sin in their life. That same just calm, controlled, loving manner. Trusting God that they'll do what is right. Just treating them in a way as spiritual children. That's, that was Paul's perspective. First Thessalonians 2 verse 7. He says, but we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. The picture of a, a nursing mother and a child is, should be the picture of the, the counselor and the counselee. You're, just, you're trying to help them. And a gentleness goes a long way as well. Lastly, we'll just throw in be personable. This is what we'd call bedside manner. My dad was a doctor, and that's a thing for doctors. You can know everything about the human body, but if you don't have bedside manner, you're not going to be a good doctor. You're going to just kind of roll over people. And same for counseling. You can't really teach this, but being an effective counselor, it kind of requires to be a people person. If you don't like people, probably shouldn't be a counselor. Like if people just bug you and rub you the wrong way, maybe you need some counseling actually. But if you don't have great people skills, well, you're, you're going to have a little trouble. You need to be able to put others at ease, relate, converse, you know, hold a conversation. You need to be not easily offended. And you need to not easily offend, like with your personality. We may need to offend people. That offense should all come from the gospel, right? And from scripture and, and the Lord's, what the Lord says about sin, not our own personality, and so anyway, I think that's enough. Like I said, this first step, it, it actually goes throughout the whole counseling process of involvement. It's where this, this is not a, a cold clinical environment where they're a patient. This is a, a brother, a sister in the Lord who's coming for help. And so just treat them as a brother or sister. You know, invest in their life. Share some of your life with them. I often begin meeting people, just some, some small talk, genuinely getting to know their life and sharing my life as well. And it will carry throughout. You're building a relationship that the Lord will use. So investment. Secondly, investigation. Second step in the counseling process, investigation. This next step is also ongoing. I mean, you're going to be learning about the person's problems continually. But, you know, this is functionally the place to begin and likely most of your first session or two is just going to be them doing all the talking, filling you in on their life, their background, their problems. We might call this step a data gathering. It's necessary. Proverbs eighteen thirteen says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. And verse 15 of Proverbs 18 says, The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. You know, someone comes to you, and they come to you, they're a blank slate. You don't know them. You don't know their problem. Or even if you do know them, you have a relationship, you still don't know the depths of their problem. So if you begin and, and you're doing all the talking, you're just immediately dumping on them. You're, you're wise counsel. You're actually a fool, says Proverbs. You have not even heard them out. You don't even really know what's going on here. And so instead, just spend some time investigating, seeking to understand the, the real nature of their problem. Remember, we've learned before, we're seeking not just the surface problems, but the heart level problem. That was back with part one, if, if that's foreign to you. They're usually going to come see you or come to you. Maybe it's just a friend even. And they're coming for some surface level problem, typically. But through investigation, 
You need to get to the bottom of the matter and find the heart problem. Ask the right questions. Find what's driving the issue. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. You say, what's going on in their heart? What's going on under the surface? They don't know. They're they're likely not self-aware. And you don't know either. You have to draw it out. And this comes typically through investigation, asking some questions. What kind of questions? What kind of data do you gather? A common counseling acronym for this is the PREACH principle, P-R-E-A-C-H. It's helping you learn about their life, their habits, their troubles, their responses, complicating factors. It starts with P, that's physical. You can ask about their life, like sleep patterns, and are they on any medications? What's their diet, their activity level, any illnesses, right? All the physical stuff. R stands for resources and relationships. You know, what's their job situation? What's their school like? What's their social life like, their spiritual life? And uh, are they already getting help? What kind of resources are they getting and looking at? E stands for emotions or, or feelings. You know, what are they feeling in the moment? Fear, worry, anxiety, bitterness, loneliness, depression, anger. You're basically asking, you know, how are they emotionally responding to whatever trouble they have? And then A is for actions. That's now how they're responding in, well, action. What are they doing? What are they failing to do? What sins might they be struggling with? Sins of commission, what they're actively doing. Sins of omission, what they are failing to do. What sin patterns do they have? The C stands for conceptual. And that just means what are they thinking? You know, what, what are their goals, their values in life? What are their desires and motives? I have to now outright ask people sooner or later, like, why are you alive? They come with their problems. Their problems seem to be like the end of the world and just, you know, why are you alive? Like, what are you living for? And just, you're going to find out what's, what's in their heart. What's, what are they living for? If they tell me something other than God, we've already identified a, a functional idol in their heart. The H is historical. And that just means you're looking at maybe their past, what's good in their past, what's bad in their past, some failures, past conflicts, maybe some issues with their parents, whatever. Just getting some historical background on their life. And so you don't have to cover all of these. Just give you some guidelines for, you know, how to investigate. You're just getting to know someone at a, you know, kind of a deep level. And uh, we can't talk about sports all day. You got to eventually get in and find out just uh, what, what their life is like to help them. And your general principles for investigation, ask open-ended questions. So not just yes and no questions, but open-ended. So they can do some talking. And as they talk, they're giving you the answer and more. They're, they're also inadvertently sharing their worldview. They're sharing their values. They're sharing how they respond to trouble, how they view God. And so just listen with a discerning ear. You can observe also nonverbal communication, like their countenance, their posture. It can tell you something if you're, if you're keen, but be cautious because that can be misread. That's just kind of a, a side note. And if other parties are involved, as they start to tell you their problems, and it's clear like there's another party involved, well, make some time to go talk to that person directly, eventually. Proverbs eighteen seventeen says, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. 
And they might be saying, hey, my, my spouse is the problem and it's all their fault. They have all these issues and what am I to do? And look, their spouse may have a lot of issues and, and problems and contributions to the conflict, but it's typically not that one-sided. And uh, talking to the spouse might help as well and because uh, it usually goes both ways. Anyway, there's real skill here. There is real skill in investigating a person's life, asking these questions, gathering data. It takes some time, practice, learning, to be able to draw out the thoughts and intentions of a person's heart. It's, it can be a challenge. So at this point, I can point you later to some good resources to help in that learning process. There's even formal tools. If you hear last night for the video we watched, he mentioned that the PDI, the Personal Data Inventory, where you can give them a form to fill out. That's the super formal version. Uh, but you can, you can take this, this second step and run with it to learn more about the skill of investigating to help a person by uncovering their problems. But after a while, after you've gathered sufficient data, usually after the first or second meeting, comes the, the third step now, and that's interpretation. Interpretation. You can open real quick to First Thessalonians 5. I'm mostly just reading all the scripture for this evening, but I'll have you turn just to a few verses for the sake of time. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, as you're turning, I'll mention this third step, interpretation. This is the thinking cap step. Your thinking cap has to be like firmly affixed for this third step. You got to get ready because you, after gathering data about the person and their problems, now it's time to draw some conclusions. You have to make some evaluations on their spiritual condition and the true nature of their problems, the true source of their problems, like we learned this morning, and then what the Bible says about what to do about it. Again, most of the time, the person's coming in with perceived problems, which may or may not be the real problem. But you've got to help them identify and interpret the real underlying heart-level problem. Very much like we learned this morning from James 4, 1 through 3. What's, what's the heart-level desire that maybe has become blown out of proportion that they're living for? That's, that's the source of their conflict, for example. And again, this is where you would reference everything we studied last time in part 1 about how the heart works, how sin works, how people change, and so forth. But at this, at this stage, it's useful to also, in a way, classify the counselee's status. You know, here's a verse referenced many times, so I hope it's familiar to you already. First Thessalonians 5.14, it's kind of a go-to counseling verse. Very simple, for just giving you a, some basic categories for dealing with people. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. And you see the categories of, of people. They're the unruly, you have the faint-hearted, and you have the weak. Different people coming from different perspectives. The unruly person is the one who is, is still, in a way, living in sin. They, they haven't fully been humbled by their sin. And so they need what? Admonishment. They're in the, the clear stage of, of conviction, admonishment, and, and humbling. The faint-hearted person is the one who has already been broken. That They know they've sinned. They know they've blown it. This is Peter after denying Christ. He, he's, he knows 
He blew it big time. But he, he's just in the pits, though. He's faint-hearted. And that person needs encouragement to, to finish walking through repentance if need be, and then just to be, accept the Lord's forgiveness. Let's be built back up. Let's be encouraged. Because, you know, ultimately, Christ is the answer to all of our problems, all of our sins. Let's, let's go back to Christ and, and derive encouragement. And then you have the weak. This is that person who just who doesn't know better. They're, they're spiritually ignorant. They're untaught. They're untrained. They're maybe a, a spiritual newborn. They just need help. They just need someone to walk with them in the faith and just give them basic instruction. Just help them out. And it's important that you basically classify people the right way because otherwise you can do some damage. Like I've said before, it's, it's pretty common sense. But if you have someone who's unruly and you encourage them, well, that's not good. You're just encouraging them in their sin. If you have someone who's faint-hearted and you admonish them, you kind of bring down the hammer, you're going gonna to crush that person. And so you have to be careful to, to deal with people as, depending on kind of where they're at in their walk. It's also keep in mind, he says, be patient with everyone. Just even, the, even that unruly person, still be patient. Be patient. That weak person, like I told you this 10 times now. Well, they're weak. They just need more help. Be patient with everyone. That's it's a chief virtue for the counselor. Well, I'll mention quickly as a side note as well, this is a good place just to make sure that throughout the process as you're interpreting their issue, use biblical labels for their issues, not labels from secular psychology. You just let's call it what it is sin and, and sinful issues. And we label it like scripture. It's not some disorder. It's, it's sin. You've made a sinful choice. And as we learned this morning from James 1 and James 4, like you are, you are 100% on the hook for that. You've no one to blame for your sin, but your own heart. And so, you know, the person does not have a personality disorder. They have a sin problem. And just use biblical labels. And that helps reinforce that we're after biblical solutions, not solutions from the world. That's hopefully why they've come to see you. They realize the world's wisdom is vain. Well, anyway, for this step here, you're taking the data you've gathered and you're just prayerfully contemplating what's, what's really going on in this person's life. Here's why they came in to see you. You learn that from investigation, but it may not be the real issue here. You've got to think it through. Take some time. You don't, you don't have to do this shooting from the hip, spur of the moment, just you know, after the session is over, you're just taking what you've learned and you're, you're, you're thinking, you're reflecting, you're meditating. Like, what, what's really going on here at that heart level? I, I'll say this is clearly the hardest step because it requires a pretty solid understanding, uh, biblically, of anthropology. You know, how humans work and tick, how we operate, according to scripture. And harmartiology, that's just the doctrine of sin. How sin works, how the flesh works, how, how the heart works. And soteriology, what the Bible says about salvation, sanctification, how people change, walking by the Spirit. Look, this all should be actually Christianity 101, but in our culture, it's so watered down. Most churches, you don't even hear any of this stuff. But anyway, you've got to be equipped here if you're going to help them accurately diagnose their problem and then identify the solution. You've got to get the problem right at a heart level and then apply what you know from Scripture about, well, how to change, how to resolve that heart problem. And so then you're going to put together a plan to help them address their problem and change. You're going to prepare to instruct them in future lessons 
on the nature of their real sin problem at the heart level and how to repent, how to grow, how to change. And that, of course, leads right into step number four, which is instruction. Instruction. In this step, it's your turn to talk. At this point, they've, they've probably done most of the talking, and that's appropriate. You're trying to get to know them and, and their issue. They're filling you in on their background, their life, their troubles. But now you've spent some time, you've interpreted what's really going on, the real issues at hand. And now it's time for you to step in and bring God's word to bear on their issues. It's not just you talking, you're trying to bring the truth of scripture into their life. Give them some biblical instruction that addresses their problem, confronts their sin, and takes them to Christ for forgiveness, for restoration, for renewal. Just helps them change. Remember, God's word is not just a history book. The Bible is not just a collection of, you know, old tales or simple life lessons. It may be centuries old, but these are life-changing truths. And God has put his power in his word through the spirit to bring people to salvation and sanctification. And drastic life change is possible when a person fully submits himself or herself to the power, the authority, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And it's going to be your job to show them this and administer the milk, administer the medicine to heal them. And that's just going to come from the Word. We hear, we still believe, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We often think about that for teaching, right? Oh yeah, we, that's why we use the Bible for teaching, and, and that is. But you know, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that sure sounds like counseling to me as well. And all scripture is profitable just for that. So anyway, use the Bible to speak to their problems. Your instruction should be appropriate to their problems. So it's not the time for a random Bible study in Judges, although that could be great. But, you know, for the sake of time, we're trying to narrow down to look at Scripture and how it speaks to their issues, their problems. A Bible study aimed right at their heart. And, and here, you know, we can't help but be kind of vague in general here. But that's because this instruction is going to be so guided by, you know, whatever their issue might be. And there are going to be some truths that keep coming up, you know, understanding repentance you're going to give them maybe a whole session on just biblical repentance, how to change, how to walk by the Spirit, how to renew your mind. Uh, there are going to be some standards you keep going back to, and even, even the gospel itself. As we talked about last time, you, you do need to discern if, if this person is a genuine Christian. And if not, well, that, that's, that's all your instruction. You're just going to share the gospel with the person over and over again, because otherwise they can't even change. It's been said all counseling is pre-counseling until a person comes to salvation. They can't meaningfully change. They can maybe change some habits or behavior, but they're still, apart from Christ, they're still going to perish. What's the use of that? So your instruction may be, and I've done this several times, it's just, it's all really gospel, using their life issues to convict them, humble them, show them their need for Christ, and turn them to the gospel. Uh, but you just have to understand, you know, how to bring the word to bear on, on their issue. Your method of instruction may vary. 
You could, you could be an outright little teacher there in the session. You're just going to walk them through a little Bible study one-on-one. You might use Q&A, discussion, reading assignments, even role-playing. Whatever you do, just remember this is biblical counseling. And so just, just keep it in the Bible. You know, you're, you're looking at verses in context. You're wielding God's word. You're doing so accurately. In this step of instruction, it may also be time to deal with some of their sins directly. That will happen throughout, but loving confrontation over sin might be needed. So here's where you would give them some direct admonishment and then guide them through biblical repentance. And for me, just become an expert in, in like First John 1 and 2, those this first couple of chapters deal so clearly with believers in sin and then how we wrongly and rightly respond to sin. And get to know some key repentance texts and the process you're going to have to challenge them, confront them, and then just lovingly guide them through what it looks like to change and then pray that the Lord would, would humble them, that they would repent. And you can work with someone like that if they're humble. Anyway, you can take this step. You could run with it, and you should. Honestly, the bulk of your counseling, your admonishment is going to be instruction. You are just kind of feeding them from the word. You're, you're doing that teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So this is, this may be the, the biggest step when it comes to time spent. And so again, I can point you here to some more counseling resources to help you learn about some of the, the key things that keep coming up when it comes to instruction. And just look, the more you know the Bible, the better. Um, you can come see me after if you want to take this one even deeper. But for the sake of our time, we're going to keep rolling. Number five is intention. A fifth step is intention. This is not a sequential step. We're just kind of throwing it in here, intention. And by this, we just mean action. As the counseling process goes on, you need to see from them action, which starts with intention. At the very least, they need to keep playing along here. We need to see intention, that that they're still committed. They're on board. They're not missing meetings. They're not skipping homework. That happens a few times, We go back to being patient and gracious and gentle. But in the long run, you know, counseling is not just you talking for an hour and that's it. There's got to be follow-up throughout the week in the life of the counselee where they're actually doing what you tell them to do. They're taking the steps you agreed upon. You got to see them eventually walk the walk. James 1.22, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Philippians 2.12 and 13 tells us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. We're going to be patient, but if, you know, after a while, we've got to see more than just talk in their lives. And so at the very least, keep them going with intention. Just keep checking their intentions. Are, are, you, are you with me? They may be just weak. They may be weak. And it may take time, but do they have that resolve, that intention, that commitment to to keep going and to do what is right? Evaluate their motives throughout the process as well. Are they making steps to change? And are they doing so for the right reasons? Are they being driven by the glory of God? Or has some new selfish interest just taken over? You got to steer their, again, the thoughts and intentions of their heart. You got to steer those as well. I'll mention here, what do you do? 
When a counselee isn't taking things seriously, they're, they're not following through, they're not taking steps to change. They're a hearer, but not a doer. <clears throat> well, it, there's no law here. Uh, you want to err on the side of patience and graciousness, but if they persist, there's repeated attempts to follow up. They're just, they're not following through. They're, they're being, we might say, a flake. And uh, you admonish them, but it's just not going anywhere. There may, there may be time to end the counseling relationship. It's just not profitable. You can't change someone who, who doesn't want to play ball, so to speak, who doesn't want to engage in the process. And I've had two in the past kind of just end, end some counseling relationship. Someone becomes kind of a black hole of time, but they never change. They never grow. They don't, they don't actually do. You've got to be a doer, not just a hearer in the growth process. As we know, maybe time to well, direct your time and attention elsewhere. And uh, I always leave the door open for the person to come back, but, you know, we've got to see something here. And if you have someone who's persisting in, we're talking real unrepentant sin, and they're just refusing to repent, well, it might even lead toward church discipline. At the end of the day, we, just, we need to see some intention and commitment among the counselee. And that's going to tie in with the next step. This is where you're going to see, this is how you're going to gauge their intention, Step number six, we might call implementation. Implementation. The counseling session is not an end in and of itself. You may have some mental breakthroughs in the counseling time. That, that's great. They kind of, oh, I, I didn't know that before. I get that. that. That's big. But most of their progress, most of their spiritual growth is going to take place in between sessions. And what we mean here is homework. We're just, we're talking about homework and the work they do to follow up with what they've learned. So trusting they, they meet you with that intention, right? Yeah, they're, they're a mess. They need to change, but they're here. They, they want to they wanna grow. They want help. They're on board. They're humble. They're seeking the Lord. They just, they just need that help. Okay. Well, you're going to give them some help and you're going to give them some homework to help them flesh out the implementation of all the instruction you gave them. As we learned last time, a big part of change in progressive sanctification is renewing your mind. Remember that? Just let that be drilled in. Renew your mind. Renew your mind with with God's word. Our sins and our struggles, they're fought and won at the heart level, the desire level. And so you need to fill your mind with truth. Renew your mind. Be controlled by scripture. That's a huge part of growth. So you're going to explain to them the process of change and then, well, give them homework that helps renew their minds. It's specifically geared toward their sin struggles, their issues, their conflicts. Homework can take many forms. It's, it's always going to include some, you know, some serious Bible reading. And not general. For the time being, we're, we're going to try and hone them in on something a little more specific with some, some questions, some observation. Some, some learning. What do you learn about Christ in Hebrews 1? Come back and tell me everything you need about Christ. Giving them a high view of God, high view of Scripture. We might need to just even rebuild their understanding of God and Christ and salvation and Scripture. Well, homework is, is great for that. Of course, prayer, that they would be seeking the Lord and his help in prayer. Christian books, you might turn to some other resources that are thoroughly biblical to help them learn something. Journaling. You know, they're going to keep a record. For example, if someone's in a lot of conflict, you can have them keep a journal for 
You know, every time they, they experience conflict, tell you the circumstances or, or something like that. You can go into that further. And even church attendance. It's a part of homework. Not, not because, you know, legalists and like, you, you must attend church or else you're going to get a guilt trip. No, it's because we know that God has a high view of church, the local church. He's actually designed the local church to play a huge part in our growth. Almost without fail, when someone is just greatly struggling in their walk, well, what do you know? They are deep, they're, they're not attached to a local church. They're just kind of mostly doing their own thing. They're kind of flaky with their attendance. They're, and even if they're, if they're attending, they're at arm's length. They're just detached. And that's part of their problem. You need to help them draw near to God through the church and integrate them into the life of the body where the local church is not just some ritual or, or social club for us. It's a place, a, a biblical local church, where as others get into their lives, they'll receive that mutual encouragement, edification, admonishment, accountability, prayer. It's all supposed to be the functions of a local church. And so getting them plugged in is going to be a, a biblical step in their growth. And that's going to be, a, you might say, a part of homework as well. Give some concrete assignments. This can even include, you know, lifestyle changes they need to put into practice. Per Romans 13, 14, it says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Remember the coming in with the sin struggle. And at the very least, you know, we're going to help you change and overcome it. But let's at least cut off what's stumbling you so much. Let's not feed the lust of your flesh. You know, for, for example, you give someone, you can give someone all the Bible reading you want, but if they persist in hanging around their super ungodly friends who keep dragging them down, well, you're not going to see a lot of change. You need to cut off these terrible influences in their life. They're taking them into sin. Let's, you know, let's make no provision for the flesh here. And many examples like that. Now, homework overall, it just gives them a chance to put truth into action in their lives. It begins the process of building new patterns of thoughts and behaviors. And also, look, it puts the responsibility for change on them. Because it is, right? You can't make them change. You're not their, their priest, right? You, you're not their shrink. You are their biblical counselor to, to tell them, Here's what God's word says about your problem. Here's how to grow and change. Now you need to do these things like the Bible says, and you will, by his power and strength, if you have the right motives, you will change. And we can testify of that power in our own lives and others time and time again, but you know, they have to then you know, do, do it, right? Actually follow through in the steps. And homework reminds them to not be too dependent on you. You're nothing really that special, God's word is special, and uh, it's, it's really going to be reflecting on them whether they're, you know, how much they're putting in. We often ask people like, you know, how fast do you want to change here? And how fast do you want to grow? And that's, that is entirely up to you how, much, how seriously you're going to take the process and just do what we tell you to do. Hopefully they see it themselves from Scripture, so they're not just begrudgingly doing some stuff, but they really see through your instruction, it's starting to click. And then they dive in. Those people, they, they change. They grow. And they grow fast. Well, as the last step here, let's wrap it up with step number seven. And that is inspiration. Inspiration. 
This final step, it's like the first step in that it takes place all throughout. So this is not like a final step, really, sequentially. It takes place all throughout. And what I mean by inspiration, it's nothing other than just giving hope. You need to inspire them or give them hope in a biblical manner that they can change. They need to believe change is possible by God's power. That they they can overcome any difficulty or conflict or trouble or trial or tribulation. God's word says so. And they need to have the hope that they can endure, overcome, and they can change. They can grow. They often come come in lacking hope. They may be at their last straw and a starvation of hope can be fatal. But this is where you need to build them up biblically into really just trusting Christ who gives us hope to face all things. In 1 Timothy 1.1 says, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. This, this step of giving hope, you know, it's ultimately pointing them to Christ. Our hope is not in a thing. It's in a person. Christ is our hope. And all that he is, all that he's done for us, all that he represents, he's our hope. He's the Savior, and what he did for us and brought to us, this is, that's the hope we need to live. And, and to, to encourage them that when you know Christ and you are in him by faith, nothing can separate us from him, our hope. That's, that's Romans 8. And speaking of Romans 8, maybe Romans eight twenty eight, that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Not all things are good. They may be coming to you because some things are bad in their life and, and they may stay bad. But God can work it into good and turn all things for the good, reminding them that their greatest good is their own Christ-likeness, yet it challenge their perspective, help them to see their life and their problems from an eternal perspective, challenge what is good in God's eyes, and namely his glory and their Christ-likeness. But that's going to feed into biblical hope. You got to help them take their eyes off of things below and set them on things above. Because ultimately our hope is not found below. It's only found above. And so set their eyes on things above. Fill them with the hope of Christ. Psalm 42.5, the psalmist says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now again, this step, this will take place all throughout. It actually, in a way, it could have been the first step because depending on how they're coming in, how desperate they might be, your, your first session, it's that data gathering, but you always kind of want to end it with, with giving hope. They're going to dump on you just their troubles, their trials, their tribulation, their despair, and it can be real and raw and, and heartbreaking. But you need to bring in the encouragement uh, and, and let them know that, you know, it may be rough. You may be going through a really difficult time. You may feel there's no way out and there, there is no help for you, that you're here because your friend made you. But as best you can, establish hope from Scripture that, look, your, your problems are not not uh, unstoppable. They are common to man, actually, First Timothy or First Corinthians one thirteen says, what you've been through, you're not the first. 
And God's word has answers. And God, God's spirit has power. And Christ died for sins just like this. That there's real hope to change, to be forgiven, to grow. You have to impart that to them. That they'll, they'll stick with you. Because when a person loses all hope, well, at the very least, they ain't coming back from counseling. And we can't help them if they don't want to talk. They have to engage. At the end of the day, hope is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a choice to trust God and believe his word. Hope comes simply from taking God at his word. And it's therefore vitally related to faith. And so as you build them up in hope, you are building them up in the faith. And God will use that to give them strength and help them persevere. And so just don't underestimate the power of hope and, and help and helping people change. And so you just be faithful to administer it. And don't substitute for a, a false hope, like, you know, worldly comforts. No, we're talking ultimate hope. We're looking to Christ. Christ is our hope. And that, that, that's all we can give them. We're not going to substitute that for anything else. He's the greatest hope and just help them to see it. By God's grace, they will. So this is that last step, but like I said, it, it's really taking place all throughout. And that'll do it for now. The, these steps kind of feed into one another. The investigation goes throughout. Your instruction goes throughout. Implementation, given homework, it really goes throughout. And hopefully over time, though, as they stick with it, as you stick with it, you start to see, well, change. Isn't that why they, they're, you're, they're seeing you? You're admonishing them and counseling them to see them grow into Christ's image to overcome a sin problem through repentance and renewal, to make real change in their lives, and to, just to grow. And as you start to see it, well, praise God. This is the, it's the power of biblical counseling, which is none other than just living the Christian life and doing all that God calls us in the church to do. And so for now, we'll say these are, these are the main basic steps in it. And you can take this much deeper, but like I said, hopefully this gives you a snapshot of how to counsel. I've talked to several of you, and you've, you've expressed your, your desire, your interest to, to learn more about counseling. So if this whets your appetite, like I say many times, come see me, and we'll give you plenty of reading to do to, to take it even further. You might be saying, this already sounds like a lot. This already sounds like way too much. Like, I, I can't do this. This, this, sounds, this sounds like too much for you. And if you think that's true, well, it is. This is too much for all of us, but just be encouraged yourself that, you know, God gives us all the strength and power we need to help people. Because you might, you might listen to this, like, you know, how to teach, how to counsel, who's sufficient for these things? And we're not even done. We've got a few more to go here. Like, who's sufficient for these things? Well, no one, no one. But God's in the business of taking, you know, weak clay, broken vessels and just putting them together and then wielding them for his glory. And he, he makes us sufficient by his power, his spirit, his grace. Using our, our giftedness, which even that's from him. So just understand, look, counseling, it can be emotionally exhausting. It can be challenging. You're, you're bearing the burdens of others. As if you don't have enough burdens in your own life, you're now just bearing the burdens of others. And it can be a challenge, but... You be encouraged. God gives us all the grace and strength we need to rise to the task. So you set your own eyes on him. You set your own hope on Christ to help this person. And then you trust God to work. You just be faithful. I'll, I'll finish like 
uh, Paul did in Colossians 1, which, which we began this whole series with as, remember, the goal of the leadership task. But just listen, pay attention to it again. He says, Colossians 1, 28, 29. He says, we proclaim him, Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Remember, that's kind of like our theme verse. That sounds hard. And he says after that, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Apart from his power, we ain't doing any of this. We ain't going to effectively counsel or teach or help anybody. But God is good and he's gracious and he's given his power. He's given equipping. He's given the wisdom we need to teach and admonish. And as you're faithful, he'll help you. So we'll just be faithful and rise to the task. That'll do it for now for this introduction to how to counsel. We'll we'll come back next time and and carry this forward before we uh, kind of wrap up this Sunday night series on biblical leadership. And so for now, I'll close this in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are are grateful for this time to to study your word and to study what it says about how we can help one another. You're wise, Lord, and when you saved us, you made us like like bricks, bricks that are not meant to be alone, that derive their strength from being melded to one another and formed into a wall, a building, where we support one another. We're not meant to be alone in the church. We're going to derive encouragement and admonishment, rebuke and love and accountability, and we all need that. Every single one of us needs that. There will be times when some of our members here, they're going to be weak, even unruly. They'll need us to, to help them, to pursue them, and to counsel them. And there, there'll be times when we are weak and unruly, and we'll need them in our lives, Lord. And so I pray where you learn tonight to be knit together in love and just engage in the process you've given to all of us in the church to admonish and counsel one another, that others might be built up into Christ's image, that they may be presented complete in Christ. We need your power for this. We thank you, knowing that your power is given through the spirit within. And we just pray you help us to be faithful. Equip us and grow us that we can be used to to edify others and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.